throughout Scripture, there are many symbols that represent the Spirit of God. Symbols are very prominent in the Bible, and we could take much time and we could talk about all the symbols in Scripture. Numbers are symbols, and we could go really deep down the rabbit hole this morning, no doubt. But theologians would call these symbols types and shadows. They are things that point forward to broader themes and things yet to come. And these recurring motifs, they ultimately point us to a greater reality and they bring deeper understanding to the reader. Now, I have not come with a theology lecture this morning. This is not a university class and I am no professor. But I think it's important that as we read the Bible that we recognize that there are symbols there and we should understand that we are meant to connect them to a greater truth. So here are some examples of symbols in Scripture that represent God's Spirit. Oil is a symbol for the Spirit of God. During the Old Testament times, kings and priests, they would have oil applied or in some cases poured over their heads showing that they were anointed and appointed for God's purposes. And this points ahead to us in the New Testament. When we are filled with the Spirit of God, we too in that moment as New Testament kings and priests, a royal priesthood, as Peter would say. We are anointed and we are appointed, literally empowered for God's purposes, and it is by God's Spirit. And so all that is to say that when you see oil in Scripture, Old or New Testament, you are meant to understand that it is a symbol representing the Spirit of God. Another one is wind or breath. And these words in Scripture, they are used interchangeably with the word spirit. Wind, breath, spirit, it's all the same. In Hebrew, in the Old Testament, it's ruach. And in Greek, in the New Testament, it's pneuma. It's the wind. It's the breath of God. It's his spirit. In John chapter 20, Jesus, he prophetically breathed on his disciples and he said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. And when the outpouring of God's Spirit would eventually come in that upper room in, in Acts chapter 2, we know that there was the sound of a rushing mighty wind. To Nicodemus, Jesus said, the wind bloweth where it listeth. And you hear the sound thereof, but you can't tell where it's coming from or where it's going. And so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. It's like the wind. It brings movement and it brings life. That's what His Spirit does. Fire is another symbol. Fire is a force that illuminates, it consumes, and it purifies, which is exactly what happens when the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God, is at work in our hearts. And also in that upper room, after that sound of the rushing mighty wind, what looked like, looked like cloven tongues, or we might say flickering flames of fire, it, it rested upon each of those gathered as they were filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. For our God is a consuming fire. Water is another one. John chapter 4, when speaking of the Spirit to the woman at the well, Jesus said, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into life everlasting. In John chapter 7, Jesus referred to the Spirit as rivers that would flow from out of our belly, out of our innermost being. The Spirit is like water, which brings cleansing. It brings washing. That's what His Spirit does. And we could take much time and we could talk about many more, but wine is a symbol of the Spirit in Scripture. 
connotating the joy of the Holy Ghost and transformation that comes when he comes into our lives. Rain is a symbol of the Spirit, which, which speaks to the outpouring aspect, and it brings refreshing, it brings renewal. These, these are symbols of the Spirit of God in Scripture. And when we come across them as we're reading the Bible, we are meant to connect them to the greater truth of the working of the Holy Ghost in our lives. Amen? They are types and shadows pointing us along to deeper understanding of how God's Spirit works in our day. Now, each one of these, we could probably break them down and we can make a multi-part series and we could be here a long time. But I just want to look at one today, and it is one that we have not yet mentioned, and that is the dove. Everyone say the dove. The dove is perhaps the most recognized and universal symbol for God's spirit in all of Christianity. Countless paintings and stained glass windows through the various ages of church history, they depict God as a dove. And when you consider this, the imagery of the dove is striking. It it speaks to the gentleness of God. You remember when Jesus sent his disciples out in Matthew chapter 10, he said, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves, so be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. The imagery and the idea of the dove. It's often associated with peace, which is exactly what God came to this earth to do, to bring peace to this earth and to extend goodwill toward men. Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 9 of this coming Messiah, saying that of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. The dove, it was used for sacrifice under the old covenant, especially by the poor. If you couldn't afford to bring a lamb for an offering, you could bring two young doves or pigeons. In fact, Luke chapter 2, it tells us that this was the sacrifice that Mary and Joseph offered when they dedicated Jesus to the Lord at the temple. They were poor. The dove, it speaks to the purity of God and the pure love that he extends to us. And you can read in the Song of Solomon, uh, many times the dove is used as, as an analogy, as a comparison to describe the love between Solomon and his beloved. They would use the dove as a descriptive word. Their love, it was pure, it was an undefiled love, as is God's love toward us. And so all of that is to say that the dove is a significant symbol, not just in Christianity, it comes from the Scripture, and it's powerful. Now, Perhaps the moment that most clearly illustrates this connection is the baptism of Jesus. And all four gospel writers, they they document the baptism of Jesus, and they each make mention of the dove, and Matthew records it like this. And Jesus, when he was baptized, he went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw, John saw, Jesus saw, all those gathered, they saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And then a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so here at Jesus' baptism, I'm laying a little foundation here this morning, we see that the Spirit of God It took on the form of a dove. A dove. Everyone say a dove. And so, again, all of this this is to say that 
that when we see the dove in Scripture, it is a picture to us, a symbol, a type and a shadow of the Spirit of God, of the Holy Ghost at work in the church. And with that in mind, I'd like to make our way in Scripture to the very first time that you will see the dove in Scripture. And it is found in the account, the narrative of Noah and the ark, that great flood of judgment. Genesis 6, it tells us the story of the great wickedness of man, how every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. It was bad. Everyone say it was bad. It was so bad that God regretted making man, and God's heart was grieved. And his solution, it was simple enough. Destroy every living thing on earth with a great flood. Now, I'll pause here to just say that I, I know when you, when you read this story and Perhaps critics would look at this story and say, that, that sounds a little too harsh for me. See, that's not a good God. That sounds like a genocidal monster. People criticize the scripture using a story like this. But you must realize that, that God allowing judgment against wickedness is actually an act of mercy. Because sin, it brings death and it brings corruption. And, and if God were to allow sin to persist, that's not kindness, that's cruelty. And we understand that's why we, have, we that's why we have laws, and that's why we have a justice system, and that's why we have penalties for those that break those laws. And when judgment comes against those who violate the law, it, it is, yes, judgment toward the lawbreaker, but it is mercy toward the law abiding. It's an act of mercy to all of us that don't want the murderer on the loose, and we don't want all the, the lawbreakers out there just wondering when we might be the next target. It's mercy toward us. What kind of a society would we be and would we have if evil were allowed to persist? And we understand it there, and it's the same with God. It is an act of mercy when he judges sin. And that's what will make heaven so beautiful, the fact that God is going to prevent sin from entering in. Heaven would be as broken as our world is today, if God allowed sin to continue in those who go there. And so he judges it, and he cleanses it, and he deals with it. That's God. That's, that's mercy. And it's mercy here in the story of Noah and the ark. And so judgment against wickedness, it's soon to come. But, but the Bible tells us in verse 8 of Genesis chapter 6 that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And through Noah and his family, an ark would be built, a structure of safety that would preserve righteousness and all living creatures. And Noah listens to what God says. He builds this ark just according to God's instructions. The floodwaters come, torrential rains, the fountains of the deep breaking up, and literally those waters, they lifted that ark to safety as it drowned everything else in its wake. The rain, it it fell. It lasted for 40 days. And even after the rain stopped, those waters, they lingered. They continued to cover the earth. And it all took about uh, exactly 150 days. 150 days. But at that, the end of that 150 days, exactly five months to the day after that first raindrop fell, that ark it came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Now, please join me in putting yourself in the shoes of Noah. Imagine being this man of God. His name means rest, but I, I imagine right now he's getting a little restless. 
He has been stuck in this ark for 150 days, not to mention all of the the hard manual labor for many decades prior. You know, never mind all that. So here he is. He's he's sitting there with all the animals, and, and you know what comes with animals, right? The manure, the mess, the smell. He, you know, he's been, he's been holed up in this ark with his wife, his children, his sons, their, 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 his, their wives. And, and, you know, I'm all for like a family vacation or whatever. But 150 days, I feel like we would start to get on each other's nerves. Any honest people in the house that would say, you know, a cruise sounds really fun, but 150 days, that's a little bit too long. Are we there yet, Dad? Yeah. Sometimes a bit of space is beneficial. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. And I love my family. I'm just teasing. But when Noah, he, he feels that ark, when he, when, when, he, when he notices that it's come to rest on solid ground on the top of that mountain, I imagine Noah got a new spring in his step. The bobbing and the swaying is over. The seasickness is done. I mean, I mean, this is coming to a close, ladies and gentlemen. It's about time to move on into a brand new season. Praise God. And Noah gets the sense that they will soon be leaving the ark. He's not sure when, but he knows that change is coming soon. And, and there's something about a season like that. When you know that there's something on the horizon, when you feel the promise of God's word in your life and in your family, it's a, it's a powerful moment and it puts a spring in your step to trust in the word of the Lord and the promise of God. Now Genesis Chapter 8, 4 through 5, it says, And the ark rested in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, upon the mountains of Ararat. And verse 5 says, And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. And in the tenth month, on the first day of the month, were the tops of the mountains seen. Now it's easy to read those two verses and quickly, uh, just, just kind of haphazardly, quickly, and miss the duration. But, but they landed on solid ground on the top of a mountain in the seventh month. And now it's the tenth month. And so... They've been sitting on this mountain beyond the 150 days for another 70 days, give or take. And all that they can see are a few mountain peaks barely sticking out, cresting the top of the water. And whatever, whatever excitement they, they probably had now was turning to frustration and, and that spring has lost its spring, you know. That, that, that spring in the step, it's gone. It's gone. But Noah... All he knows to do is trust God and wait. That's what he's been doing for decades, building that ark, waiting for the rains to fall. Something that had not yet happened, by the way. Nobody had ever seen a raindrop, but it happened. He waited on God there. He's been waiting for for some 220-odd days at this point, and, and, and he knows that God doesn't move at the same pace that we do. Sometimes God seems slow to us, slow in his pace. Slow and lingering in his timing. So 220 days have passed since they entered that ark, but the wait is still not over. Forty more days pass, and it seems that Noah is getting impatient. And and it seems like he gets to this point where he says, God, I need a sign. I I need a sign. And Noah gets this idea, I'm going to send birds out. I'm going to open that window that God told me to put in this ark, and I'm going to send some birds out. I'm going to see if they can find dry ground. And if they don't come back, then I'll know it's time to move forward, and we're going to find a way off this ark one way or another. And the Bible tells us, Genesis 8, verse 6, 
came to pass at the end of those 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made and he sent forth a raven. Everyone say a raven. And that raven, it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from off the earth. The raven, it left the ark and it never returned. It left the ark and it never returned. Now this is what Noah was looking for. That was the sign that he was expecting that would be indication to him that it's time to step forward and move on and, and go, go on in, into what God has next for me. But there is a problem because the raven, Scripture would teach us later that, that it is an unclean, scavenging bird and, and the raven can feed off of the flesh of dead things that would float in the water. That's what the scripture means when it says that it went to and fro. It wasn't out and back to the ark. It was to and fro from one dead thing to the next dead thing to the next dead thing. It was able to be sustained by flesh. You see, Noah, we know this. Noah still needed to wait because the water was still covering the earth. The time to move, it was soon, but it was not yet. Everyone say, not yet. Even though Noah, he seemed to have the sign he was looking for, we understand that if he would have got out of that ark, if that door was able to be opened somehow, and you know, maybe he and his family would survive, but all those animals would just drown. So, so it wasn't time yet, even though it looked like it was. And it's easy when you're in a difficult time to want to try to rush through it, you know, to, to press fast forward on where God has you now. And to prematurely leave a season or a moment that God wants you to linger in. And he calls us in those moments and in those times to trust him. And to not take our cues from what is unclean or from our flesh. Because if we listen to our flesh in those moments, we might move forward before our time. We might step out of something that God wants us to stay in for a while. And so, yes, Noah, he's ready to move out and to move on. After all, that raven has found some way to survive. And, hey, maybe I could too. But just to be sure, let's send out one more bird. And this is where we first see the dove mentioned in Scripture, Genesis 8, verse 8. Also, he sent forth a dove. Everyone say a dove. To see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. And so for a second opinion, Noah sends out not the raven, not another raven, but this clean bird, the dove. And unlike the raven, the dove was not a scavenger. It would not be fed by the rotting flesh of dead things bobbing in the water. Now you would think if, if, if the raven was able to go and stay away, you would think that perhaps the dove could figure a way to do it as well. He's expecting the same result, no doubt. But lo and behold, here comes that dove flying back to that window and perching on Noah's arm again. And Noah is disappointed. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being Noah right now? He knows what this means. There's no ground for that dove to perch upon. And we already know that that dove represents the Spirit of God. And that unclean raven that is sustained by dead things, in many ways it represents our flesh. It's when we take our cues from things that are temporal and things that are fleshly instead of the things of the Spirit of God. In fact, the word raven, it, it has a, a, a darker look, of course, but the word raven, it actually means to be darkened, which is exactly what happens when we follow our flesh, 
to the disregard of the Spirit, we end up walking in dark places and we end up facing destruction when we follow the flesh in times when we feel it's time to move on, but it's not. John said in 1 John chapter 1 that this then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And if we say that we have fellowship with God, if we say, yeah, me and God, we're good, but then we walk in darkness and we pursue the things of the flesh, we lie and we do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. You see, that is the raven. It's, it's flesh. It's darkness, which ultimately leads to destruction. So, so here's the question. I've, I know I've, I've taken some time to kind of set us up this morning, but the question that I want to ask you is, what do we do when the raven says go, but the dove says no? What do we do when the flesh says forward, but the spirit, it says stop? When everything within us, it urges us to move on and, and just do it our way and, and figure it out somehow, but we feel a check from God's spirit in our spirit, and we are not released to move forward yet. What do we do? I'm preaching to somebody today. You've got to take your cues from the dove, and you've got to wait on the Lord and trust him in the process and trust that he is working things out for your benefit. That God can see the things that you cannot see. Noah, from his vantage point, he couldn't see all the water still in those low-lying places of the earth. He couldn't see that, but God knew. God knew the perfect time to bring that, that open door to Noah and his family and to those animals. I'm preaching this morning about those moments when God says no. When God says no. We don't, we don't understand and it doesn't seem fair, but, but what do we do when God says no, though the flesh says go? And I don't know who I may be preaching to this morning, but as I prayed about this service and prayed about this message, I, I just had this sense that maybe there would be somebody in my hearing in the valley of decision, ready to take matters in your own hands. And instead of waiting on God's timing, when the flesh is telling you to step out, but God is saying, no, not yet, just hold on a little longer and trust in me and wait on my timing. Now, now hear me this morning, leaving the ark, it is the will of God. Somebody say, it's the will of God. It is right for Noah to move on. This is not meant to last forever. Leaving the ark is right, but even a good thing out of season can be destructive to you. The prodigal son found that out, didn't he? He received an inheritance from his father, and everyone said the inheritance was good. The inheritance was a good thing, but he followed what his flesh wanted, and as a result, it destroyed so much of what was good in his life. He ended up losing his inheritance and falling to the lowest of the low places in his life. And it brought such destruction. And it's all because he didn't wait on the timing of his father. He did what seemed good to his flesh. But there is a way that seems right to a man. But the end thereof are the ways of death. And he ended up losing everything. I've said this in this pulpit before, but it bears repeating that the right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing. The right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing. 
I've come to tell somebody that God knows exactly what blessing to bring and more importantly, when to bring it into your life. That it will be a blessing to you and not a hindrance to you. God knows, and it's in his timing. God knows exactly when to open that door in your life. God knows the right moment and the right time that it won't destroy you, but it will advance you. Abraham and Sarah, they they were, in fact, promised a son by God. We know the story, but it was to happen in God's timing and in God's way. But they got tired of waiting, didn't they? And Sarah gives Hagar, her handmaiden, to Abraham which is foreign to us but common in those days. And said, hey, Abraham, have a, have a child, have a son through my handmaid. And as a result, Ishmael was born. And I think we could all agree that, yes, it was the will of God for them to have a son, but not this way and not this time. Now, Paul, in Galatians chapter 4, he, he's using these two brothers, these half-brothers, Ishmael and Isaac, as an illustration of the old covenant and the new covenant. But he makes this statement. But as then he that was born after the flesh, that's Ishmael, that which was born after the flesh ended up persecuting him that was born after the spirit, and that is Isaac. Genesis 21 verse 9 tells us that Ishmael, the detour in Abraham and Sarah's life, it would end up mocking Isaac, which was the promise from God. And this is what happens when when you stop listening to what God is saying. When you grow weary in well-doing, grow weary in waiting on God's timing, and you follow your flesh instead, you listen to the raven instead of the dove. And when you do, those things born of your flesh, they have this way of sticking with you and persecuting and mocking your promise and your progress. That's what happens when we follow our flesh in a season of waiting. When we yield to the temptation and we say, well, I'll make it. The raven made it. It looks like others are making it. I'm just going to do this too. But, but I'm preaching to somebody that, that there are those moments and there are those seasons when, when we do feel a little bit walled in and, and we're feeling a little bit claustrophobic and it's starting to smell in that ark. But when the deciding factor when, when, the, when, when we are deciding, rather, whether to step out or stay put, we must not consult our flesh. We, we need to see what the dove is saying and let the Spirit lead us. Paul talked about this, Romans chapter 8. He said, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. A lot, of, a lot of times people leave out that last phrase. No condemnation in Christ. Powerful promise, and it's true. But it is for those who walk not after the flesh, after the raven, but they walk after the Spirit, the dove. He said in verse 6, to be carnally minded, it's death. When you mind the things of the flesh, it's enmity against God. It brings death into your life. But to be spiritually minded, it is life and it is peace. That's what the dove will bring. It brings life and it brings peace into your life. And we must choose what voice we will listen to in those moments. We have to choose who we will follow after in those moments. And when there's a contradiction between what our flesh is saying and what God is saying, then we have to be humble enough and patient enough to wait on the Lord and follow His Spirit. Now, I'll just quote verse 9 because I think it's good. 
Paul said, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. And if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So I'll just say this, that if you have a desire to walk in the spirit, you need to be filled with the spirit of God. The first thing that we got to do is open our hearts and lift our hands and offer our praise to the Lord and say, God, come and fill my life. I want to be prompted. I want to be directed. I want to hear your voice each and every day. Walking in the Spirit starts by being filled with the Spirit. And somebody say, praise the Lord. I believe today that the Lord has a desire to lead us. Anybody believe that today? That the Lord has a desire to lead us. Music, join me. I'm coming in for a close here. I believe that the Lord wants to walk with us and order our steps and prompt us and ultimately help us. I know that the dove, it just seemed like another delay in this long litany of delays for Noah. But it was God trying to help him and allow him to experience perfect time, the best time. Can I tell you that sometimes God's direction, it will cause you to remain in a place that is not preferable and in a moment that you would rather move on from. But what will your response be when the Spirit says no, when God is saying no? Proverbs chapter 3, Solomon said, trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not to thine own understanding. It makes sense to us sometimes, but don't lean on that. In all of your ways, acknowledge him. Don't look to the raven, look to the dove. And if you'll do so, he will direct thy paths. And a lot of people stop right there, but verse 7 is powerful. Be not wise in thine own eyes, but fear the Lord. And in doing so, you will depart from evil. And so Noah, he does the right thing. You know, he probably didn't want to do it, probably didn't feel like it, but he waited on God nonetheless. And he kept on sending out that dove, checking in every once in a while. Is it time yet, God? Is it time yet? Seven days after that first trip, that dove goes out again, and this time he comes back with an olive leaf. Good tidings, letting no one know, hey, we're getting close, but still not yet. Heading in the right direction, but still Noah waits. Seven days later, the dove goes out a third time, and this time, like the raven, the dove doesn't come back. And so what Noah was looking for, the sign that he thought he had received from the flesh, from the raven, finally, it comes from God. And he knows, now is the time. It's taken longer than what Noah wanted. But eventually, he got, he got the release from God. And God said, go came from God and not from the flesh. And God was about ready to open the doors and to make a way for Noah to leave that ark. And just a little while later, that's exactly what God does. And what I am preaching today is that there will be times in your life when God says no. Or maybe I could say it this way. Like with Noah, it wasn't a, an all-out no. Because he knew, and we know, that it was God's will for him to leave that ark. And so really the no from God, it really was a not yet. When God says no, or maybe we would say, when God says slow, press pause 
and trust me. And if you will learn to wait on God's timing, I'm, I'm here to tell you that God will bring abundant blessing into your life. You've got to realize that God can see the things that you can't see. God can see the waters that will drown you if you step out too soon. And we've got to trust him. I close with this story. I, I was praying. I said, God, where, where are we landing this? And I was drawn to Joshua and the city of Jericho and this whole story in, in the Old Testament. When Joshua, he was leading the nation of Israel into that land of promise, the first city that they would conquer, it was the city of Jericho, right? Seemed an impossible task with, with the impenetrable looming walls and all, but God was with them and, and they marched around those walls for seven days and they shouted for the victory and the walls came tumbling down. Somebody shout victory. Victory in the Lord. But before they went in, God had told his people this, don't keep any of the plunder for yourselves. But bring all that gold, bring all that silver into the Lord's treasuries and destroy the rest as an offering to the Lord. And this was the principle of first fruits, the first city that they came to. It was to be offered as an offering to Him and not to be kept back for themselves. God said no. Look at your neighbor and say, God said no. But there was this man named Achan. And as he was wandering through the rubble of Jericho, he notices some silver coins. He notices a gold bar. He notices this beautiful robe from Babylon. He's like, that looks fly. i got to have that for myself. Couldn't resist. The pull of his flesh was strong. And so he takes it. He buries, under, buries it under his tent. This sin by just one man ends up bringing a curse upon the entire nation. And Israel is defeated at the next battle they would face at a town called Ai. Joshua is perplexed and confused. Why is this happening, God? And God reveals it was because of the sin of this man named Achan, whose name means to trouble, by the way. And that's exactly what Achan did. He troubled himself, and he troubled the nation of Israel. The truth comes out. Achan returns the spoils, but it's too little too late. He and his family lose their lives as a result because it is a treacherous and troublesome thing to disregard the word of the Lord and follow what your flesh desires. It brings trouble to you and those around you. And Achan's mistake was that he chose to listen to his flesh instead, to, instead of to God. He chose the raven instead of the dove. But here's why I tell this story, and I'll close with this. I've always been fascinated by Joshua chapter 8 and how it begins. The Bible says that the Lord said unto Joshua, after the whole Achan saga is taken care of, God said, Fear not, neither be thou dismayed, but take all the people of war with thee. Arise, go up to Ai again. See, I have given into thy hand the king of Ai and his people and his city and his land. You're going to have victory here just like you did at Jericho. But verse 2, And thou shalt do to Ai and to her king as thou didst to Jericho and her king, only, here's the difference, the spoil thereof and the cattle thereof shall ye take for a prey unto yourselves. Did you catch that? Do you, do you see what God is saying to Joshua and to the people of Israel? They could have as much as they wanted at the next town. There was coming a victory very soon 
where they could have whatever they wanted, as much spoils as they wanted, and had Achan only trusted in God and waited a little longer and resisted his flesh, but listened instead to the word of God. He could have had anything he wanted. It wasn't just 200 silver coins. It was as many as he wanted. It wasn't just one gold bar. It was as many as he wanted. He could have had a closet full and wore them out in public instead of burying them under his tent. He could have displayed all the spoils for everybody to see as a sign of what God had done, the blessing of heaven. But unfortunately, Achan listened to the raven instead of the dove. When God said no, Achan responded poorly. Stand together with me this morning. I want to tell somebody, all that we do, like Achan in the book of Joshua, all that we are doing is robbing ourselves of an opportunity for God to bless us abundantly. You see, what you partake of when you follow your flesh, it ends up being so much smaller than what God has in store for you if you would just learn to wait. It wouldn't have to be hidden. It wouldn't have to be a shameful thing. It would be a blessed, abundant thing. But you've got to wait. You've got to take your cues from the dove, from God, and not from the raven, the flesh. So here's what I want to do this morning as we close this service. I thank you for your kind attention. I know it's a little bit of a different message maybe, but I feel like the Lord wants to help strengthen us. Somebody who maybe is in that moment of waiting. Somebody who is in that, that place that is not comfortable. You don't like it. Nobody would. But God's saying, just hold on a little longer. And if you'll trust me, there's a blessing coming that is greater than anything that you could achieve or accomplish on your own in your flesh. If you'll just trust me, if you'll wait on me, I'm going to bless you. The prophet Isaiah, and I'll close with this. The prophet said, he giveth power to the faint. I don't know if there's anybody in the house today that may be in the waiting. You're feeling a little bit faint. You're feeling a little bit weary in well-doing. But the prophet said, and he promised that God can give power and strength to the faint. And to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord, they shall renew their strength. And the strength of God will cause you to mount up on wings as eagles, to run and not be weary, and to walk and not faint. As I just want to say, there's strength in the house of the Lord today. If we will just renew our consecration and commitment, I'm going to wait on the Lord. No matter how difficult, no matter how frustrating, no matter how inconvenient what I'm in right now is, I'm going to wait on God and I'm going to trust His timing. I'm going to take my cues from the dove. Even when God is saying no or slow or not yet, I'm trusting you, Jesus. I wonder if we all could gather around this front this morning because I believe the Lord wants to do that today. I believe that the Lord wants to baptize his people with the strength of God for the season that you're in today. Hallelujah. Come on, I wish that everybody would come around this altar. If you're able to at all, I believe that maybe it's not for you, but it's for somebody today. There is strength in the house of God this morning. As we lift our hands in surrender and we wait on the Lord, there's strength that can baptize us in the house of the Lord today. Lift your hands and lift your voice right now.
Come on, the dove, the spirit, the Holy Ghost wants to empower somebody today. You don't have to do this in your own strength. You've got the dove. You've got the spirit of God. Come on, raise your voice right now. Raise your voice right now. You might be first time in the house today. You may be a guest with us. We're so glad that you're here. But can I tell you, God wants to empower you and strengthen you for whatever you're walking through today. Yes, yes, yes. Come on. Come on, just lift your voice for a moment. I know that everything within you maybe wants to move on and pass and just carry on with what comes next in life. But God is saying, just hold up. Trust me. Trust me. I am with you. I am for you. Lord Jesus, I'm praying right now that as the people of God lift their hands and surrender to your plan and lift their voices in praise to the one who is with us all the way, I'm praying that strength would be renewed in this altar today, in this sanctuary today. God, it's a declaration of trust in the faithful God that we serve. Yes, 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 yes. Come on, somebody silence the voice of the flesh. Somebody silence the voice of the enemy today and say, I'm tuning my ear to what the Spirit is saying to the church of the living God. I'm going to wait on God. Come on, if it's appropriate, why don't we get a hold of somebody all across the sanctuary? Take them by the hand, put your hand on their shoulder. Can we just pray strength? Let's pray the strength of God. Let's just pray a resolve, a determination. I'm going to stand. I'm going to stay. I'm praying for that staying power of the Spirit of God to keep somebody, whatever you're walking in today, in Jesus' name. Somebody pray it over your neighbor. Somebody pray it over your neighbor in Jesus' name.